the Sunday Sermons Podcast. When Jesus' body was hanging on the cross, the soldiers came to make sure that he was dead and they shoved a spear into his side. How many have heard this before? So you know what's coming. What came out was blood and water. This is a literal story. It's what happened. There's actually a couple different medical scientific explanations for what that would, how that would happen. There's several different ways our bodies can produce a lot of water and blood inside of us if we're under extreme trauma like what Jesus was going through. But I believe in light of what I'm sharing you today and what we've been walking through uh, last week and where we're going I believe it's even more than that. I think this was not only a literal thing, just what happened that day, but a symbol. Because we see blood and water all the way through the scripture as ways that God cleanses us and renews us. If you would, say say that out loud with me this morning. God cleanses and renews with blood and water. This was in the old covenants, in the new covenant. It's ultimately the blood of Jesus. Uh, It all depends on Jesus. I hope that comes through clearer than anything else today. It 100% depends on him. But we see both of these symbols all the way through. We see them in literal stories. We see them in the prophecies. We see them in the laws and the rituals that God created. Things like the tabernacle. Last week, I walked you through that, so I won't spend quite as much time, but just to refresh and make sure we see how this works, there's three big things happening in the tabernacle. First, you have an altar, a sin altar, and there's a lot of blood involved in that. You can't even approach God without a blood sacrifice to pay for your sins. The next step in is a water basin. And, and in this basin, the priests were the only ones in that era. They were only in that covenant. Only the priests could do this. But over and over, they had to dip their hands under that water and pull it out. And if you've been slaughtering an animal or a whole bunch of animals, that's not doing a whole lot of literal good. It's a symbol of cleansing. And then they could approach the tabernacle. Are we following so far? And then we get there into the, everything inside of the two extra tents and the, in there represented the very presence of God. So we see blood, we see water, and we see God's presence over and over and over. It actually starts in Genesis with the water thing. Uh, Genesis, I think you probably recognize these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The second part goes like this. And the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This is right before he says, let there be light. Sometimes we skip over that because we get so excited about let there be light. And how many days and were they literal days? And we, we, we go a lot of different directions with this. But it starts out here. And what you see is before God starts turning the lights on and filling the land and filling the water and all the other things he did, there's a planet covered in Water is what I'm looking for, but also darkness. And the spirit of God, his presence is right there. And he brings out of that chaos, out of that darkness, out of that emptiness, he starts bringing beauty and intention and design. That's the first place you see it. And then it keeps coming. Remember when he had to reset everything just a couple hundred years in? What did he do? He used a flood. Everybody knows this if you went to Sunday school. He used a flood, which is made up of what? 
Water, yes, absolutely. You're starting to see how this works. And he cleanses and he renews with water. And not only that, all the people who died in the flood, it it probably, it, it might not have been literally bloody, but they died. And that's what the blood represents. So you're seeing how this kind of swirls together. You just went a little bit. You see it everywhere. And in the New Testament, Peter says this. For Christ also suffered once for your sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Then he goes into this really cool story about how when Jesus was dead on the cross, his physical body is dead on the cross. They're sticking him with a spear and all that. His spirit is talking to those who had gone before to speak to them. It's a really confusing but really cool idea. He went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, Peter writes, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. Let's pause for just a second. We're going to keep going in this passage. But when I read that, I'm thinking, wait, saved through the water? What's the water got to do with it? The water's what's killing everybody. They're saved by God in the ark from the water. And yet, there's a symbol here. And that's what Peter's trying to say. This is symbolic. He he spells it out right here, the next verse. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And it just keeps going from there. Uh, How many have ever heard the story of Moses bringing the Israelites out of Egypt? We just sang about it a second again. You split the sea and I would walk right through it. That's where the image starts shifting, where you see people passing through water. This is quite a bit before the basin even that I mentioned at the beginning. This is before that. It's probably at least maybe a couple years before they built the tabernacle. This is as they're leaving. But on one side, they're slaves. They're this close to getting killed by all their enemies. They pass through the water miraculously by the power of God, not by themselves. The water isn't anything special, but see the symbol? They pass through the water, and on the other side, they're free. On the other side, they're on their way home. On their other side, they're now not slaves of Egypt, but the people of God. And it continues. We get through the wilderness, and they they wander around, they make a lot of mistakes, and it's a whole thing, but they finally get to the edge of the promised land, and what happens? They have to pass through the Jordan River. And once again, God duplicates this same miracle in the water's part, and they march through on dry land. And on one side, they're wandering around and dying off in the wilderness. And on the other side, they have entered the promised land. They're ready for a new start. And these symbols of passing through water, it, it's really not about the water, but it's a symbol that God uses over and over and over again because God, He wants us to get it. He knows that he created us, so he knows that a lot of us are visual learners, tactile learners. We don't just learn by memorizing things. We learn by doing and feeling, and so he gives us stuff to eat and drink. 
And he gives us stuff to do, something to feel, something to, to see, something to hear, visuals, ideas, images. And water is so consistent. First Corinthians 10, Paul writes this. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And I already mentioned the promised land going into, um, going into the promised land across the Jordan River. And of course, this shows up again in the time of Jesus. Let's fast forward up to that. They've used the basin in the tabernacle for years and years. Then it's the basin in the, tab- in, in the temple, which is even bigger. It's this huge, even elaborate, but the same thing. They have to dip in it over and over all day before they can approach the holiest parts of the temple. But now you've got this guy named John the Baptist. Ever heard of him? And he shows up and he's dunking people in the Jordan River. There's a lot of symbols, so much symbols around there. But again, he's pointing all of it to Jesus. It's not about him. It's not so much about the water or any of that, but he explains what he's doing. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. And hopefully everybody knows this, but just in case, repentance means you do a 180. You do a U-turn. You're going one way, now you're going the other. And, and, and this is... Throughout the scripture, the idea of repentance has to do with blood. That first blood sacrifice. When you hand over a, a, a lamb to be sacrificed in your place. And you say, I'm not going to sin anymore and I need forgiveness. That's a repentance thing. So he's tying all these things together. But he says, I baptize you for water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So now we see all these symbols swirling around one more time. Now, one of the most beautiful, wonderful things about Morrison Hill is we all come from a huge variety of religious backgrounds. Whole bunch of different churches, whole bunch of different traditions. We've, we've all been coached in different ways to respond to different things and ask different questions and answer them in different ways. But we find our unity here by looking at the scripture and what does the scripture say? That's what I'd like to do this morning. So I, I guarantee you somebody in the room, I'll just name the elephant and let's do this. Somebody in the room, I guarantee you is going, is he going to say baptism is essential for salvation? And I, I, a bunch of you are going to go, he better. <laughs> and, and a bunch of you are going to go, he better not. <laughs> because that's how you've been trained. That, that's what you've been taught about what it all means and how it works. Some of you are going to say, wait a second, he better not start making fun of other churches and he better not be talking about sprinkling and all this. He better not preach my godly old granny who only got sprinkled into hell today. Okay, listen, All, if there's an exception to anything in the word, that is so far above my pay grade. That's 100, 100% God. Do you understand? Are you hearing me on this? I'm laying out my heart as clearly as I can before we go one step further. I heard a story 
A couple years ago, one of the worst tragedies I've heard, but it was a big church in Texas. It's actually where David Crowder, if you heard of David Crowder, it's where he preached, or where he, I'm sorry, where he led worship. But the preacher was about to baptize somebody in the baptistry, a young teenage boy. This guy's given his life to Christ, the preacher's there. And for some reason, instead of a microphone that is mounted on the wall like we had, they had one hanging down. And something went wrong and he reached up to grab it and they both got electrocuted right there in front of everybody, right before he got baptized. Now, I don't care what your theology is. I don't think there's one person anywhere who knows Jesus at all that thinks that they went to hell that day. Right? God is good and loving and kind. So is baptism essential for salvation? Those kind of questions are up to God. We're not gonna fight over that this morning. Is that okay? But here's what I'd like us to do. As we keep going, let's embrace this truth. Sometimes we just need better questions. And I think the better question here is what does the Bible actually say and what are we gonna do about it? And how can we find unity in all of us doing that? Even if we come up with a couple slightly different answers between us, if we can all agree we're gonna look at the word together and we're gonna try to do our best to obey that and find our unity in that, We're good. Is that cool? Can we do that together this morning? So let's start in Ephesians. This this passage doesn't actually mention baptism, but it mentions all the stuff that baptism and uh, Jesus on the cross and everything else represents. Before we do that, though, there's one more thing that I forgot. I got to tell you this part. There's a criminal on the cross. And in Luke 23 is one of the places that he mentions this is another exception that's, it's, as far as I know, it's the only exception in the Bible where somebody is saved outside of both covenants, okay? Because up till then, the only way you could be saved by God is by going to the temple and offering these sacrifices and following the laws, right? I don't think that criminal on the cross was one of those people, okay? And, and, and he dies repenting, but he dies. He, he, he can't go offer any more sacrifices. He can't, hold on, hold on. Let me get a lamb. I'll be right back. Okay? And when we are baptized, when we put our faith into Christ, we're talking about his death and his burial, his resurrection and the great commission and everything that Jesus has on the other side of what he did for us. He hasn't even done it yet. So this guy's not under the new covenant either. How does he get saved? Jesus himself, Jesus himself says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Because we're saved by Jesus, right? But at the same time, this same Jesus and all of his disciples after that has some things to say about baptism to carry on this whole water thing. So can we go there in unity this morning? Just kind of look at all that. Okay, here we go. First, Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Picture the chaos and the darkness and the deep before creation. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Okay, but the spirit of God is hovering over the waters. 
Somebody's about to say, let there be light. You ready? But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And I'd like you to read this next verse with me, the whole thing, not just a little statement with underlines or anything, the whole thing. Let's, let's read this together. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So again, let's just dispel one of the big myths about baptism gets thrown out sometimes. Baptism is not a work, okay? Baptism is not something you do to force God to save you. It's not a ticket that you buy. It's not some, it's not that kind of a thing at all. It's deeper. It's bigger. So let's look at that together. Baptism unites us with Christ and all he offers. Would you say that out loud with me? Baptism unites us with Christ and all he offers. How does it unite us with Christ? Well, in several ways. We'll read some verses here in a second where it literally says that word for word. But it's, it's deeper than that too. See, Jesus was baptized by John. Now, how many have heard that story before? He comes to John and John says, wait, you should baptize me because he knows what's really going on here. He knows where the real power is. But Jesus says, no, it's important that we do this to fulfill all righteousness. This is one of the very few things in Jesus' life that all four gospel accounts include. There's a lot of overlap between the four, but there's very few things that all four of them mention. This is one of them. So it must have been pretty important no matter what they were talking about. But Jesus is baptized. And at that moment, there's no way that God didn't already claim him as his son. There's no way that in somehow or another, whatever you believe about the incarnation, there's flavors about that too. There's no possible way that the Holy Spirit of God, the very presence of God, the energy of God was not involved in Jesus' life already up to that point in some way, right? We know this. He's Jesus. But that is the moment where God says from heaven... This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And that's the moment where the spirit comes down in a very visual way and starts to lead him first thing out into the wilderness. Are we tracking? Okay, so Jesus did it himself and he made it clear that it was for, it was an example he was trying to set. And then we say this almost every Sunday actually because it's kind of at the heart of everything we do. He gave us a great commission as he was leaving this earth and getting ready to come back, go into all the world, make disciples or followers of me in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the things that I have commanded. And I will always be with you even to the end of the age. Does that sound familiar? It's just part of it. So again, I'm not going to say it's essential or it's not essential, but is there anything that Jesus says that we can all say is not essential? Is there any way that we can just, any command of Jesus, he goes, don't do this, that we can just go, but it's really okay. 
or anything that Jesus says, do this. And we go, you really don't have to do that one. I'm not, that's way above all of our pay grade, right? We don't get to make that choice. That's not really us. And all through the book of Acts, you see last week, we actually talked about this in Acts chapter two, the very first church, very first time people got together and remembered and celebrated and did something about Jesus's death, burial and resurrection. And what's on the other side of that because of all he did, Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins can be forgiven. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for all who are far off, all whom the Lord our God will call. So 3,000 people that joined the church the very first day got baptized that day. And they kept it going all the way through the book of Acts. Every single time you see somebody become a Christian, that's how they did it. They professed their faith in Christ. They baptized them right then. They moved on with a completely different life. It was just automatic. There wasn't any other, there's nothing else in the Bible that's offered. It's just, it's, that, that's what we see. Here's one example. Um, awesome story. Paul and Silas get thrown in prison. And instead of just whining and crying, they're singing praise songs and God sends an earthquake. You ever heard this one? If not, all of these scriptures, you, you, you won't believe the little guideline if you haven't looked at it. Some of you are already taking notes and stuff. But I'm telling you, there's so many scriptures on every one of these points today. Because I'm begging you to go through, just read God's word for yourself on every one of these great story if you've never heard it. But that's the bottom line. There's a huge earthquake sets them and all the other prisoners free, but none of them run off. The jailer absolutely panics because he knows that under Roman law, he's going to be killed if any of the prisoners get escape. The jailer calls for the lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? At this point, just like in Acts 2, I'm not really sure that he is thinking what we're thinking when we say saved. A lot of us have been trained to think if you get saved, that means you do something and then when you die, you go to heaven. And hopefully that's implied we do something else between now and then. But when when they first asked Peter, what they were really saying is, we killed the Messiah. Is there any way we cannot be just utterly destroyed by God right now? Does that make sense? And this guy, he's going, I'm a dead man. Is there any possible way that I can not get killed tonight? More than anything. But here's their reply, and we'll just see how the story goes. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke to the word, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At the hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. You're starting to see how this works. It's just, it's inseparable. It's it's not... It's not about, he, it doesn't say he, he, he had great joy because he had gotten baptized and now he gets to go to heaven when he dies. He had put his faith in Jesus. 
But how do they express that? How do they go through that? How do they welcome him into the kingdom? How is he united with Christ in this? Through baptism. Is, it, is this making sense? This is just what we see in the scripture. This is the pattern we're given in, this, in the text. Paul makes it super clear in Romans chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. So how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And in case you, you don't know, that's, that's what the imagery is about you got here's the water here's the person you're buried with Christ you're raised to a new life that, that that's what that means that's why there's a dunking process also that Greek word baptizo that's what it means it, it means dunk uh, the early translators were afraid of offending people and so they they decided to just make a new English word baptize out of the Greek word baptizo rather than just translate it as immerse or dunk. Just throwing that out. (laughs) So in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Galatians, you are all children of God through faith. You still following me on this? It's all faith in Jesus. But watch what he says next. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. In Ephesians, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Colossians chapter 2 is all about the total change that has to happen in us when we come to Christ. That's, again, one of the things you see over and over in all of these images. Blood, water, uh, the rituals of the tabernacle, Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection, baptism. All of the places you see this idea that we are reborn. There's a new new thing that happens. We, we are changed. We are cleansed. We are renewed in so many powerful ways by Jesus, by his power. This is just consistently the thing that God presents throughout the scriptures as how that happens. One more, Colossians chapter two. Paul writes, in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. I'm so thankful that that one's part of the old covenant and not the new covenant. I'm just throwing that out. But this is not meant to be crude. This is not weird, but he's using some very specific 
imagery here. He's talking about in, in circumcision, something of you is cut off and thrown away. Listen to what he says. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Dr. Tony Evans uh, says, the great tragedy today is that we don't have enough Christians who know who they are. I, I really believe that. See, see, the whole idea of being a Christian is that you have been saved, not just from going to hell when you die, but you've been saved from a life of sin. You've been saved from the power of sin. You've been saved from the emptiness and the darkness and the chaos that is everything except where there's the light and the power and the beauty and the design and the love of God. You've been saved from not being God's people, actually being his enemies, to being his friends, his family. On one side of you coming to Christ, you're on your own. On the other side, you are his. So it just makes sense in light of the entire scripture, especially these verbatim ones we've just been reading together that they'd use that same imagery. On one side of something, you're this way and then you pass through water and on the other side, things are different. Does that make sense? Here's one last illustration and, and we'll wrap up here this morning. I hope... This makes sense. I hope, if nothing else, that this encourages each one of you to to ask more questions, to dig deeper. Because, again, this is just such a beautiful image that goes all the way through Scripture. And for some reason, historically, people have fought over it more than been united around it. And I don't understand that. I think it's very clear and very simple and very beautiful. But we're not here to fight about it or alienate anybody at all. I just urge you to go with us into the Scripture and ask the questions. Come talk to me or anybody. But here, here's one more, one more illustration. Anybody who's ever been married, let me see the married people out there. Awesome. I hope, I hope all of you are going on the marriage retreat, or at least most of you, this, I'm looking forward to that a lot. But here's the thing. If you've been married, here's what you know. It's really all about a daily choice to love that person more than anything. Are you with me, married people? Can I get an amen or something? I mean, that's what keeps you. It's a daily choice. It's a daily yes to this person in that relationship and a daily no to all the other people and all the other potential relationships. It's a daily choice that makes you married. That's really what makes you married. It's not really a ring on your finger. Oh, gosh, I have to stay married. It's not really the license somewhere. Oh, no, rats, I'm still married. It's the love, right? It's the choice. And we all understand that. But we also understand that if you've never been through the ceremony, you've never signed the paper, you don't have the ring, whatever it is that your culture, some of those are just American culture, but we have something you go through that says, on this side, I'm single, and on this side, I'm married. And if you haven't done that, you're just living together. And you may actually love that person, and you may both be trying to seek Jesus, but you're not married. And in the Bible, that's a sin too. That's a whole nother rabbit hole we won't go down today. But does this make sense? And so here, here's, here's, the, here's what I hope this morning. 
Maybe there's, maybe there's somebody out there this morning that hasn't, hasn't ever got married. And maybe you're living like you are sort of and maybe you should come forward today and decide to get married or go home today and talk about it and decide to get married. There might be a bunch of you out there today that have loved Jesus forever and you've had this kind of relationship or this kind of relationship or you've been sprinkled or you prayed a prayer or whatever and maybe you've never even seen some of these verses today and you go, oh, oh. Well, I never did that yet. Maybe you should get baptized. We're not trying to negate any relationship you've had with God up to this point. We're not trying to pretend that you're you haven't heard the voice of God in some way up to this point, that God's spirit isn't hovering over the waters of the darkness of your life just he is over ours. But I think it's pretty clear. Maybe you should get baptized today. Or maybe you've never given your life to Jesus at all. Maybe, maybe there's somebody here that wasn't even, you've, you're not following Jesus, but for whatever reason, today you feel like, I really should. I'd like that kind of a complete, fresh new start. I'd like to do that. And I'd like to do it the way they did it every single time in the Bible. Guess what? The water's warm, clean. There's towels up there. There's clothes you could wear and change into. Don't even have to ruin the clothes you're wearing today. Or you could go home and celebrate in that. But as always, here's my invitation to you. If you need to make a public decision today, if you want prayer, if you want to talk to somebody, if you want to join our church, if you want to join the family of God, this is your chance. We're going to stand, we're going to sing. And I I ask whatever God is asking you to do, if it needs to be very private, if it needs to be just you, do that, stay where you are, but make that choice. Make that step this morning as we stand and sing.